In a recent episode, we referenced the see-it-believe-it paradigm for intrapartum maternal hypertension. That phrase is there in order to prevent treatment delay of administering antihypertensive medications when appropriate. But what about another vital sign, like maternal temperature? If a patient develops intrapartum fever, is that always due to infection? What if it's an isolated temperature elevation, meaning there's no fetal heart rate tachycardia, there's no uterine tenderness, and there's no foul odor to the amniotic fluid? And this happens shortly after epidural administration. Does this require ampicillin and gentamicin as is the usual and customary regimen for suspected intraamniotic infection? The phenomenon of epidural-related maternal fever, or ERMF for short, has been going on since the 1990s. In this episode, we're going to take a look at this current state of science regarding ERMF, and it's very timely that we do so because there's two recent EPUBs that have just come out. Those are publications ahead of print that are both in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. That's the Gray Journal. Both of these articles came out in March 2023. Both of these publications deal with epidural-related maternal fever. It's a pretty common clinical situation, and it really is a conundrum. The first article that we're going to highlight is Epidural-Related Maternal Fever, Incidents, Pathophysiology, Outcomes, and Management. The first author is Selena Patel, and again, that's in the Gray Journal, once again from March 2023. The second publication, also in the Gray Journal, is by Callahan et al., and that title of that publication is Modern Labor Epidural Analgesia, Implications for Labor Outcomes and Maternal Fetal Health. We're going to summarize these two recent publications that aren't officially out in print yet, and we're going to cover a lot of stuff related to intrapartum fever, because again, it really is a clinical conundrum. Do we see it and believe it, or do we recognize that behind the veil, there may be other issues at play that aren't necessarily infectious? And if that's the case, that they're not necessarily infectious, do they still require antibiotic therapy? Well, the American College of OBGYN has an answer. So let's get to ERMF, epidural-related maternal fever, in this episode. I remember actively recruiting patients for one of the studies that we're going to reference in this episode. Man, how crazy is that? I was an intern, and the lead author on this, the lead investigator, was an obstetrical anesthesiologist named Dr. Shiv Sharma. I remember seeing him, even as an intern, seeing this faculty member outside of our department, right? Because I was OBGYN, he's the Department of Anesthesia. But I remember hearing him uh, teach to the anesthesia residents and then teaching us. And I'm going, man, this guy is just so stinking smart. I mean, I I learned so much about the maternal adaptation to pain and the response to pain interventions. Uh, And I even remember these conversations among the faculty as they were doing this study. Uh, The question was, is it the epidural itself that's causing a temperature elevation? Or is it the effect of the epidural on labor, like labor prolongation, that's responsible for fever? Uh, Well, let me just settle that real quick. Because now with modern anesthetic techniques, which we're going to cover in just a minute, and the new concentrations of anesthetic agents used, yes, labor epidurals may prolong labor. Absolutely. But not to a point where it's going to contribute in any significant way to fever. All right? So let's just say that right there. 
Yes, it is true. Labor epidurals in the first stage of labor may prolong labor a bit, but it's not by a vast amount. And the same holds true in the second stage of labor. And there is no reason, let's just say it now, to withhold epidurals beyond a certain uh, dilation uh, or prior to a certain dilation, I should say. So if you say, well, we're going to give an epidural, but we can't give it until four centimeters or five centimeters. We're not going to give it until the active phase of six centimeters. That may be a physician preference, but the only indication for when an epidural can be placed is maternal request. That's it. Assuming that her anatomy allows it, she has no contraindications to it. Otherwise, like severe thrombocytopenia, if the patient asks for it, that's the indication for the epidural at that time. So waiting for a certain dilation to occur to not affect labor is no longer evidence-based, okay? I learned with that that, well, we, we have to do IV medications, parenteral meds, until the patient got into then four centimeters, which was active phase of labor. Uh, that's robbing her of great pain medication for no real reason. Uh, now, that was rooted in previous anesthetic blocks that were very dense and had a whole different response uh, and effect on the labor progress. But with modern anesthetic techniques, to be very clear, there does not seem to be any basis for the plan of withholding labor epidurals up to a certain dilation. All right, so we can now lose that fear. It's not a thing, but we're back to this question. Do epidurals in and by themselves cause maternal temperature elevation. Before we address the types of labor epidurals from the traditional to the newer approaches and newer methods of administration, I do want to give you one of those references that kind of debunked the myth that waiting up to a certain dilation would be better for the progress of labor. Okay, I just want to address that very quickly. Um, in this randomized trial, Owell et al., that's O-H-E-L, randomized 449 nulliparous women to under 3 centimeter cervical dilation to either initiation of epidural, that's called early initiation, or having it delayed until there were at least 4 centimeters, all right? So these were all nullips, so we can't say that labor history impacted the results. This is the first time going through labor. So basically, early epidurals under 3 centimeters or wait until you're at least 4 centimeters. Remember, at least 4 centimeters. The study found no difference in assisted vaginal delivery or cesarean delivery rates, whereas mean duration from randomization to full cervical dilation was shorter in the early epidural group. Yeah, they actually labored faster, just so you can see how varied some of these results were. But there is randomized data, level one evidence, that administering a labor epidural uh, anytime, not, without regard to cervical dilation, uh, does not impact negatively labor progress. Now, if you're thinking, nice try, Chapa, that's one RCT, where's the rest? Well, let's just throw them all into a bucket called the Cochrane Database uh, and see what Cochrane has to say. All right. Well, in the Cochrane database that was published by SNIG, that's S-N-G, this actually took a look at high quality evidence and it compared early versus late epidural initiation and found, quote, there was similar effects on all measured outcomes, including rates of cesarean delivery or assisted vaginal delivery. There was also no change in duration of second stage of labor and in low APGAR scores, end quote. So again, that Cochrane Systematic Review that was published um, back in 
2014 showed that early initiation of epidural compared to late initiation of epidural actually had no significant differences in labor duration. Now that we've laid down that foundation, let's talk about the three different types of epidural approach. The traditional approach involves localization of the epidural space with the toothy needle. This is followed by direct placement of a catheter in that space. In the combined spinal epidural technique, a spinal needle is advanced through the toothy needle to access the subarachnoid space, and then there is a delivery of anesthetic before delivering and threading the catheter into the epidural space. Another variation, known as the dural punctured epidural technique, uses the same step as the combined spinal epidural technique to visualize cerebral spinal fluid through the spinal needle, but it forgoes the delivery of the intrathecal anesthetic. In other words, it's just the dural tap or the dural scrape or the dural puncture to let some anesthetic in, but it doesn't actually deliver the medication in the intrathecal space. Before we go any deeper into the issue of ERMF, remember that's epidural-related maternal fever, it's a good idea to just recap what ACOG labels as intrapartum fever. So let's do that next. ACOG's Committee Opinion 712 deals with intrapartum fever. Of course, most clinicians attribute intrapartum fever to an infectious etiology, and it's not wrong to do so. It's okay in that assumption. But as evidence grows, we now understand that not all fever in labor is necessarily infectious, especially after regional anesthesia. But the real problem is that we don't have an easy way to clinically distinguish between true intramniotic infection versus other non-infectious etiologies. Yes, I understand that we could always draw out amniotic fluid and look for interleukin-6 or check for amniotic fluid glucose levels or do a gram stain in culture. But come on, I mean, we just don't do that clinically at the bedside. One, it's morbid, it's invasive, and we don't have time to wait for those results because those results can be unpredictable. So we just don't have a way to figure out if this is truly chorioamnionitis or suspected IAI or non-infectious issue. Now, a little bit later on the podcast, we're going to circle back to this because here's a clinical pearl and a quick spoiler. It really doesn't matter at all. Fever of any etiology is not good for the child. So it becomes more of an academic discussion. Well, is it infectious? Is it not? Is there fetal tachycardia? Is there uterine tenderness? But the truth is, fever intrapartum is a harbinger of adverse outcomes. So we're going to explain that a little bit later on in the, in the podcast. But just remember that while we definitely have ways to describe and categorize intrapartum fever, and we're going to do that right now, fever of any etiology is not good and should be addressed. This difficulty of not knowing if the fever is epidural-related or truly infectious is why it's difficult to track true maternal outcomes just based on fever intrapartum because we don't know what the etiology is. But it's actually easier to track fetal outcomes. I mean, we know what those are. 
I'm going to tell you what those neonatal outcomes are in just a moment. But tracking maternal outcomes like labor dystocia or risk of PPH is difficult because we're not sure if really if the uterus is truly infected intrapartum. We won't know that until we send the placenta off for histological evaluation or if the fever is just related to the inflammatory response that epidurals cause. Yes, epidurals for sure cause this pro-inflammatory state on top of the pro-inflammatory state that labor is by itself. I'm going to explain all of this in a minute. All to say it's hard to track if adverse maternal outcomes like postpartum hemorrhage or labor dystocia is due to epidural-related fever as an inflammatory response or an infectious response because, as we've already stated, it's very hard to distinguish one from the other. But neonatal outcomes, those have been tracked with any etiology of fever, any fever at all that happens intrapartum. That has been associated with adverse neonatal outcomes, including hypotonia, early onset seizures, reduced APGAR scores, assisted ventilation, increased neonatal sepsis evaluation, increased need for neonatal antibiotics, and NICU admissions. In addition to the direct effects of infection, it has been postulated, of course, so we all know this, that just the inflammatory response to infection or the inflammation in general intrapartum can lead to adverse neurodevelopmental outcomes. But regarding epidural-related maternal fever, currently, there's just insufficient clinical data to determine if there's a direct association specifically with that condition, ERMF, and neonatal brain injury. And the reason that data doesn't exist is because of what we've already stated multiple times. Very hard to distinguish when it's just the epidural or if it's fever from an infectious etiology. And ACOG states, it doesn't really matter. Inflammation and fever intrapartum should be treated since we don't have a clinical tool to distinguish one from the other. Let me stop here for a minute because if your question is, uh, wait a minute, so did you just tell me that I'm just going to treat her anyway? I'm going to give her ampingent, like if it's IAI, even if though there's no fetal tachycardia, no uterine tenderness, no foul smelling lochia, and the fever happened like an hour after she got the epidural. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And ACOG says so too. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. So if you're thinking, well, well, okay, fine. Well, I was going to treat her. So why are we even talking about this? Because it has to do with understanding the pathophysiology of what's going on. It's good to empirically treat since we can distinguish one from the other. But we have to realize that sometimes what we're treating isn't necessarily infectious. There is this inflammatory response. Again, I'm going to discuss that in a minute. That the epidural causes that can result in fever. And I'm going to give you that pathophysiology in a minute. Fever of any etiology is not good intrapartum. That's a given. So until we have a better way of distinguishing one from the other, it is advised to treat as if it was infectious. But the whole purpose of doing this episode is to realize that not everything is as it seems. So yes, see it and believe it. But sometimes it's deeper than that and understand what may be going on, especially in the presence of a regional anesthetic. Man, we were supposed to be talking about ACOG's three different classifications for maternal fever, and we ended up talking about something a little bit off to the side, still parallel to our discussion, but that really wasn't what I wanted to get into at that time. But nonetheless, I digressed. Okay, so let's get back on, let's get back on track. 
ACOG identifies three different kinds of fever intrapartum. This is all in that committee opinion, all right? It's not just ACOG. This is ACOG. This is the CDC. It's the NIH. It's the American Academy of Pediatrics and SMFM. Intrapartum fever has three different categories. The first is isolated maternal fever. That's basically what we're seeing here with the epidural-related maternal fever, okay? Isolated maternal fever. We'll explain that in a minute. The second is suspected intramniotic infection. And then the third category is one that we won't know until after the fact, which is confirmed intramniotic infection. Now, how is it confirmed? Well, you send off the placenta and it says, ah, oh, histologically, there's chorioamniotitis. Fine. Or, again, there's uh, amniotic tap, which very few do, and there's high interleukin-6, low glucose, or there's gram stain that's positive or it cultures out an organism. But, again, very few people do that. So the three kinds of intrapartum fever are isolated, suspected IAI, intramniotic infection, and then confirmed. Isolated maternal fever is defined as either a single oral temperature of 39 degrees Celsius or more, that's just one of those, or an oral temperature of 38 degrees Celsius to 38.9 degrees Celsius that persists when the temperature is repeated over 30 minutes, all right? So isolated maternal fever is temperature of 39 degrees Celsius or more, or one that's between 38 and 38.9 one time and then repeated in 30 minutes is still there, right? That's isolated maternal fever. Nothing else is going on. Just those criteria. Suspected intramniotic infection is based on clinical criteria that includes maternal intrapartum fever with one or more of the following that we've discussed already earlier in the episode. Maternal leukocytosis, which is hard to read because labor causes that anyway. Purulent cervical drainage, that's not normal, or fetal tachycardia and uterine tenderness. Confirmed intramniotic infection is based on a positive amniotic fluid test like gram stain or a glucose level or the culture results consistent with infection or placental pathology that comes back showing histological evidence of chorioamnionitis. I'm going to give you two ACOG directives in this episode. I'm going to give you one now and then one at the end of the episode. The first ACOG directive has to do with this presumed isolated maternal fever, which it recognizes may truly be non-infectious. But once again, not having a way to figure out if that's non-infectious or truly infectious, ACOG says treat it like it is truly an, inf an infectious issue. So ACOG's recommendation optimizes sensitivity given that, quote, markedly elevated maternal temperatures are most likely due to infection, while transient lower temperature elevations may be due to infection or may be superious and may be related to a non-infectious factor like dehydration or epidural analgesia, end quote. Now, it doesn't define what that lower temperature elevation is. That's why it just groups it all together like, hey, if it's isolated maternal temperature or if it's suspected IAI, in other words, temperature with clinical factors, just treat it all the same and err on the side of caution and give that patient antibiotics. I'm going to give you the second directive, which is very similar to this at the end of the episode. Man, we've covered all that. We still haven't got into the basic question. Does labor epidural analgesia, does LEA, LEA, actually result in maternal fever apart from infection? The short answer, yep, it does. Epidural-related maternal fever was first described in 1989 by Fusey et al. 
They actually studied this in laboring women who received epidural analgesia and found that those who had regional block were more likely to experience a rise in core body temperature of about 1 degree Celsius over 7 hours than those who received only intramuscular meperidine for pain control. That was published in The Lancet and the title was Maternal Pyrexia Associated with the Use of Epidural Analgesia in Labor. Then, in 1995, Dr. Raymond et al. randomized over 1,300 patients to either labor epidural analgesia or IV Demerol and found that 23% of the epidural cohort developed fever at a temperature greater or equal to 38 degrees Celsius, whereas only 4.8% did that in the meperidine group, the Demerol group. That's Dr. Raymond back in 1995, and that was published in Obstetrics and Gynecology, the Green Journal. I'm proud to say Dr. Raymond was my faculty back then, Dr. Lucas, Shiv Sharma, and Dr. Uh, Kenneth Levino, who's now passed. All of those were pioneers, and I'm so proud that I had an opportunity to train under them. Dr. Raymond, you're the bomb. Remember, that was Dr. Raymond's RCT from 1995. But part of those same authors also did the same thing in a separate study that was published in 2002. Dr. Sharma et al. conducted another RCT evaluating the effects of labor epidural analgesia on cesarean section rates. They reported 33% of the labor epidural patients developed fever, again, greater than 38 degrees Celsius, whereas those in the meperidine cohort only had fever at 6.9%, obviously a big statistically significant difference. The lead author was Shiv Sharma, and that was published in the journal Anesthesiology in 2002. All right, now you've got two good RCTs from my old institution saying, yep, definitely there's something going on here. Labor epidural anesthesia compared to IM or IV pain medication definitely has a statistically significant increase in maternal pyrexia. And as much as I admire these authors, they trained me, these studies have faced a lot of criticism for selection bias or crossover and dropout rates and even biases in obstetrical management that challenge the validity of these studies. You're like, ooh, that's kind of tough. Where did that come from? Well, one of those studies was published in Clinical Perinatology in 2013 by Arendt et al., the title was The Association Between Epidural Labor Analgesia and Maternal Fever. So all to say, yes, we definitely understand and we agree that labor epidural anesthesia definitely tends to have some propensity towards maternal pyrexia, although not everybody agrees to the extent that it does. So nobody argues that it causes it. What's argued and debated is the extent to which it does. Whew, academic medicine, gotta love it. Well, how does it even do that? I mean, what is the pathophysiology of getting an epidural intrapartum and then boom, your temperature goes up? Well, even though all of the specifics are not truly elucidated, we definitely have some big, big gaps here that have now been filled in based on scientific study and data. So that's good. We understand now that this is mainly driven by inflammatory markers. This is an inflammatory response. The effect has consistently emerged from a wide range of studies and has been termed this epidural-related maternal fever, and some call it epidural-related maternal inflammation. This is definitely a phenomenon only in laboring patients because women who are not laboring don't seem to experience this pyrexia. 
at the core root of this seems to be the increase in pro-inflammatory signals in the body. Labor by itself induces an inflammatory state, which is well demonstrated by increased levels of circulating cytokines like interleukin-6 and interleukin-10. So it seems to be this combination of factors, the normal spontaneous inflammatory response to labor itself, plus the epidural-mediated rise in cytokines, both of those come together into this perfect storm to increase the chance of maternal fever, of maternal pyrexia. But remember, this isn't 100%, because if it was, every patient with a labor epidural would get fever. And we know darn well that that's not the case. Which brings us to the next question. Well, how often does this happen? Well, the literature is all over the place. Some state that this happens at a low frequency of 1.6%. Other state it happens as high as 46%. That's a huge spread. And the reason that there's this heterogeneity in the data is because people define fever different ways. Some call it 38 degrees Celsius flat. Others 38.5. Others won't call it unless it's 39 degrees. So you have all these different variations. But the point is, yes, it happens. And what ACOG calls it or what ACOG uses as a number as a reference range is typically between 15 to 25 percent. Now remember that that 15 to 25 percent is just kind of the average. Remember we said 1.6 percent to 46 percent. So that's just kind of right in the middle. But remember, that's just kind of an eyeball. That's just kind of grouping everything in the middle, like a median. It doesn't necessarily mean that patients will have that response clinically on the ward, something that we will see. This temperature elevation can start as early as one to two hours after epidural placement. However, the majority of studies have said that epidural-related maternal fever can occur up to and within six hours after starting the epidural. That was published by Sultan et al. back in 2016 in the journal Anesthesia and Analgesia. And it doesn't seem to matter what kind of anesthetic is used or its concentration. The studies evaluating the effects of different concentrations of local anesthetics used for labor epidurals on this incidence of ERMF have reported conflicting results. Some studies have shown that using lower concentrations actually reduces the fever rate, but others have found no difference at all. So once again, it's unclear if the dose or the type of medication used actually affects epidural-related fever incidence or not. That was published by Chen et al. just last year in 2022 in Anesthesia, Critical Care, and Pain Management. The title of that publication was Effects of Labor Analgesia with Different Concentrations of Ropivacaine on Maternal Body Temperature and Inflammatory Factors, a Randomized Control Study. Okay, I think we all get it. Labor epidural analgesia predisposes a patient to maternal pyrexia, although some argue the extent to which it does that. But what about giving a patient prophylactic antibiotics before the epidural? Can that prevent fever? Well, the short answer, no. And that's been published as well. That was Dr. Sharma and Dr. Alexander who took a look at that and actually found that randomizing patients to antibiotic prophylaxis versus no medication before epidurals did not reduce the rate of epidural-related maternal fever. That was published again in Anesthesia Analgesia in 2014. Isn't that interesting? But there is 
proof that this is an inflammatory issue because another publication from 2006 found that if patients received glucocorticoids as an anti-inflammatory, then they did dramatically reduce their risk of getting epidural-related maternal fever. But, you know, we're just not going to give patients just willy-nilly glucocorticoids that's, that's because that's not good for neonatal sugar control and it's not good on the patient's adrenals. So we definitely don't want to be doing that if we don't have to. So we need more data about how to best prevent maternal-related fever, but it doesn't seem that antibiotics work, and while glucocorticoids definitely do work, it definitely is not mainstream yet. That would be the best, wouldn't it? Rather than just giving everybody antibiotics, which could lead to antibiotic resistance because we just don't know who's infectious and who isn't. And the real issue isn't necessarily the infectious issue. It's that inflammation and it's the fever itself. Then it would be great to give a blocking agent beforehand. Well, maybe Tylenol can do it. And yes, Tylenol is super benign. That's something that can be tried before labor epidural, one gram of Tylenol. But again, that just doesn't have the robust data to show that that should be uniformly accepted. So that would be the best. How do you treat ERMF, epidural-related maternal fever? Well, the better answer is how do we prevent that? And we just don't have any large clinical studies that, that have proven that one agent, agent X or agent Y, uh, works the best. So as of right now, we're stuck with the clinical directive by ACOG, which I'm going to give you now, and then we're going to bring this podcast to a close. Oh, and just one last thing about prevention. This is really the big issue here. I mean, ideally, we could prevent intrapartum fever because there's plenty of data that although we can bring temperature down, we can give IV fluids, we can give antipyretics, we can change the temperature of the patient, but it doesn't necessarily decrease the neonatal sequelae. You see, because even though we can bring down temperature, which is correct, we should do that because the temperature in the womb, fetal temperature is higher than overall maternal temperature because it's within the core of the body. But once you get that temperature elevation, we can't necessarily decrease the interleukin response. So that's the catch. Yes, we can drop fever down, but it doesn't necessarily reduce the neonatal sequelae. That's why prevention of fever to begin with is much better than treatment. As we get ready to close the podcast, remember this management pearl per ACOG. Antibiotics should be considered specifically in the setting of isolated maternal fever as often occurs with ERMF. Remember, that's epidural-related maternal fever. And this is because we just don't have a way of figuring out who is infectious and who is not. Plus, there should also be temperature-decreasing agents, in other words, antipyretics, to reduce the risk of fever progression. As is stated very well by Battelle et al. in the March 2023 Gray Journal publication on the subject, quote, Until better and less invasive intrapartum diagnostic tools become available, any practical distinction between suspected and confirmed intramniotic infection will remain meaningful only in research settings and not for the obstetrical care provider managing a patient in labor, end quote. So here's your final take-home message. Can labor epidurals cause fever? Absolutely. To what degree? Well, that depends on who you read. What's the cause of it? Likely it's an inflammatory trigger that rises the predisposition to pyrexia even above the inflammatory state of natural labor to begin with. And then lastly, how to treat this? Treat it as you would any infectious etiology. 
IV hydration, antipyretics to keep temperature at bay, and administer broad-spectrum antibiotics, typically ampicillin and gentamicin per ACOG criteria. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have summarized two upcoming publications from the Gray Journal, both dealing with different aspects of labor epidurals. One has to do with techniques and the other with the potential of labor epidurals to cause pyrexia or epidural-related maternal fever. And we also summarize a variety of other studies on the subject. As always, we're thankful for you and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.